I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 5. A few weeks ago, I titled the sermon, Lord, I want to have faith. And in that, we begin to show how faith comes. You have to be influenced and so forth. You have to hear the word. You have to respond to the word. You have to be convicted about its truth. You won't respond to anything you're not convinced of or convicted of. So you got to stay with it until that happens. And last time we said, Lord, I want to keep my faith. See, if you're a Christian, if you read the Bible, if you hear much about it, if you talk to people about it, maybe you hear radio or you read the book or something about the Bible or about God, something has to do with Scripture. You will run across many verses that will tell you how important faith is, why you should have it. Without faith, you can't please God, for example. And when the Lord comes back, the question he asked was, will he find faith on the earth? So you begin to realize, because this is the prompting of the Lord, that this thing of faith is important. You begin to study it. Lord, I want to have faith like that. Then you keep reading about that same faith, and you realize some depart from the faith. Some people had faith made shipwrecked. Some people were deceived, misled, went astray, gave up the faith. Then you pray like we did the last time, Lord, I want to keep my faith. I don't want the things I read about that happen to so many people. I don't want that to happen to me. So you begin to search in the scriptures and read in the Bible what I must do so that I don't lose my faith or depart from it in the last days or any day keep reading the Bible, you keep searching the scriptures, keep hearing people talk, how many you know that God never stops talking to you? If you're willing to approach him and listen to him, he never stops talking to you. You quit hearing when you don't want to hear. You may be in a room where it's being said, I grew up like this. You may be in the room where it is, a nice place and all of that, and the preacher's talking about something, but I have no interest in it. So I'm not convicted of anything. I'm not convinced of anything. Really, I'm not even interested in, in what he's saying. My mother told me I had to go to church, so there I am, sitting with her. I didn't have any interest in it. But when I began to read it after I got saved, after the Lord brought me to him, I not only heard about the faith and heard about losing faith, but also began to realize that God puts quite a premium on his will. Jesus said, I have come to do the Father's will. That's why he came. I have come to do my Father's will. I said that in Hebrews 10, verse 7, and verse 9. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed that not his will but the Lord's be done. One time his disciples said to him, Lord, your family's out here. They want you. They want you to come on. And he said in Mark chapter 3, Who is my mother and who are my brethren but those who do the will of God? So you see, you start reading things like it, and you think, now, this is on the same level of importance as these other things I'm talking about. What good would it do me to have a lot of faith and be able to walk something out and confess something and have faith if I didn't know what to have it for? Faith is not something you just imagine something you're supposed to believe for and then claim it or something. But faith is based on the Word. But if I don't have the Word in me clear to me, I won't use my faith. I'll just assume that I have faith because I'm in this room with y'all. 
I begin to hear people talk. I'm talking to people. I'm being stirred. I read my Bible. It's just a time of private devotion, just reading the scripture. And eventually you come across things like this. The will of God. Or those stirring verses in Matthew 7, he said, Not everybody that says and be Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father. I think, man, oh man, this is really getting serious. Or in 1 John 2 and verse 7, he said, He that doeth the will of God shall abide forever. Now I'm really interested. Because I realize this, my Christianity isn't much of anything. It's not much more than a show or a form unless I am doing what God wants me to do as a Christian. Now what God wants me to do and what he shows us to do is his will. God's will is God telling us, showing us, revealing to us what he wants. Then I keep reading. I get over to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13. He said, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Well, my earthly good, if whatever that is, my reason for being on this earth is so that God who called me out of darkness into his marvelous light can inside of me make known to me his will. And then prompt me to do it, to live according to what he shows me. And think through the years. Think of all the things that you have been shown and told through the years, all your years in Christianity here, there, somewhere. All the things that God wants. All the things that God said, this is the way, walk in. Well, that would be his will, wouldn't it? Think of all the things he's told us and things that really stirred us up and bothered us and some things we were just, yeah, amen. All the ways he wants us to act and respond. All the things he wants us to initiate, the kind of character we ought to have to love and to help and to be just and fair. That's his will. Along with all the other things that we've learned. It seems like God is just teaching us a whole lot of things that ought to have a whole lot of effect upon our lives. Again, Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do my will, but the Father's will. Now, that's the same thing that goes with for us. God didn't save us to populate a church because Scripture defines his saving us as his rescuing us out of the miry clay and of us surrendering our will in our lives to God so that we have literally been bought with the price. You know what the price was, don't you? His life, his life for my life. I've been bought. I no longer belong to myself. As the Bible says, I'm his purchased possession. I am not mine. I am his. And he has a right in my life to use me any way he wants to I have no right to hold back, to say, I can, I'm not ready for that. I belong to him. Now, that's the way it's supposed to be. Now, obviously, that's not an easy pill to swallow. It takes a long time to get to the end of this. But that's the way it works. You see, I didn't know that. But again, going back to where I started, when I began reading the Bible, I began searching the scriptures. I run into that. I think, my, my, my. Then in those quiet moments, I hope everybody has when you do nothing but think. 
I began realizing how much importance God's will is. For example, look in Ephesians 5. I think you're there. 5 and verse 17. He says, Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. An unwise person is simply a foolish person. I think it's this word unwise, the Greek word translated unwise here is used seven times in the New Testament. Only once is it translated this way. The other six ways are either fools or foolishness or foolish. And a foolish person, the Bible would describe, is one who is unwise. He's just not a very smart, wise person. He may hear how to escape death, but he's too busy having fun. He may hear the dangers of something he's doing, but he's never been hurt by it, so he doesn't do anything about it. He doesn't try to avoid what's coming. He plays the fool. I guess we've all heard the story of the ant and the grasshopper. The ant works all summer to store food for the winter because he knows winter's coming. I mean, he knows it's going to get cold and there'll be no food out there. He knows that. So while it's hot and summery, he goes out and he works and... While the grasshoppers plant, the grasshoppers think, man, what a waste of life. All you do is work. When the snow began to fall, the ant just shut the door and feasted all winter. And the grasshopper, well, he went back to the dust of the earth. He died, in other words. He didn't make it. He didn't plan ahead. Well, people are like that. An unwise person is foolish in the way he makes choices in life and the way they live, because they're not thinking about what they're doing as whether or not this is the way God wants them to live, whether this is right or wrong or even fair. But he says, be not like that, be not unwise, but understanding. What an interesting word understanding is. Let me just tell you another place that this word is used. Y'all have heard the story about the sower and the seed? And the Bible said this about one of those who sowed the seed, he said, the seed fell on the hard soil, you know, the path where everybody walks. It hasn't been cultivated. The ground isn't tore up so the seed can get in it. But some of the seed, as he threw it out in the field, some of it just landed where it couldn't take root. But Jesus likened those seeds on that hard soil. He said, when any man hears the word of the kingdom, Jesus said, and understandeth it not, the devil comes and snatches away the word that was sown in his heart. So here you got this picture. Jesus is describing the kind of hearts that a lot of people have. Very religious, very well-intentioned, maybe generous, I don't know. But they don't understand the word. But the word understand doesn't mean academically understand it. The word understand is a word which means there's no reflection, there's no contemplation. There's no thinking about the word. The word understanding means the comprehending activity of the mind. You heard what was said, and what was said captures your thinker, your mind. And you begin to take advantage of this particular moment. It might be a divine moment. It might be a moment that's only going to come this time, this way, this place. But it's a moment in which God really taps on your heart about something. And so you stop and you think, I wonder what that means, which is a good thought. I wonder what that means. Does that mean then that I'm supposed to, wow, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Bible said, and a man begins to think about it. Now this word again, understanding, 
this little Greek word, sunimai, it means to think about what is said like a piece of a puzzle. It's a part of the bigger whole, and you bring it in, and you put it in your mind wherever you're thinking, whatever you're thinking about, and you begin to collect the pieces of your thoughts. This is why it's important to meditate and stop and think about things. And you begin to shut down all the noise of this world, and you begin to think about what God is saying to you. You begin to put it in a picture. God has obviously something to say. He wants sometimes just to see how serious any of us are about understanding his word, because on some of those nights you're not very awake and you're kind of tired. He says things that really affect you, and you think, man, I really need that. That's why we take notes. Thank God for pencils and paper. But the more you're willing to do what most don't do, that is to think about what you just heard, make it personal, draw it into your own little private chamber, into your little space, my space, and begin to put this thing together. And you ask yourself, Lord, what are you saying? Because God who sees the heart knows what you're after. You really want to know what he meant. You're not trying to outdo everybody else. You're not interested in that. You just want to know what that meant. What is God saying to me? There are people like this. Not all Christians are, but there are some who are. And so you begin to listen to it. You begin to contemplate it. You begin to grasp it. And one day there comes this time in which God opens your eyes like he did in Ephesians 1. And you begin to go, I see it. I see it. I know all of you have probably worked on a puzzle in your life. If you hadn't, may it snow a lot and you buy one. I remember times in my whole family, except my dad, he wasn't going to do that kind of stuff. But he might have. I don't know. But my mother was a big puzzle doer. And we'd get a puzzle, a 500-piecer. I'd cry if it was 1,000 pieces. We get a big puzzle. We'd sit around. It might take us a couple of days. But every time somebody would say, I found one. Look, look. Yay. You know, like you're really a hero here. But, and then eventually you begin to see the bigger picture. You know what I'm saying? You begin to see the, it's coming to form. And just like on the box. If you didn't have that picture on the box, you never would get the thing together. But you begin to see it coming. And there's a big vase of flowers. Flowers are hard to put together. But you begin to see all of that. And it's just the same way it is with God. A little piece. Then another little piece. And then another piece. It came from the radio. Another little piece came from a conversation you had with a brother or sister. Another piece came in a sermon. Another piece came when you were reading an article. Wasn't even about biblical or anything. It just something said in a secular paper that it was there. Little pieces, God begins to give them to us, and we begin to put these pieces together. And the purpose of seeing the bigger picture is that we might be affected by that to know that this is the way God wants us to live. He shows it to us. It's when you start living this way that you start enjoying what God is all about. Otherwise, church can be a real chore. But when you can begin to enjoy it, it's because you see where you're going, you see what he's saying, it's like, I see what you're saying. I'm getting the picture. That's what the word understanding is to me. Jesus said people who don't understand the word, that is, who aren't even trying to get to the bottom of it, have no real interest in it. The devil comes to that person, takes away the word that was sown in their heart. They never remembered it. 
They never miss it because it never meant anything to them. They never used it. It didn't have any use for it. Wouldn't know how to use it. And they've lost it forever. Now that's tragedy. But see, the end of verse 17 was, he said, be not unwise, but understanding about what? Be understanding about what the will of God is. Oh, now this picture's getting a little clearer now because all these things that God is saying to me becomes a revelation, an illumination, if you can say it the way. God begins to open my mind and show me something about what he wants. Now, you and I both know that whatever God wants from you is God's will. That's what he's doing inside of you, inside of you both the will and the do of his good pleasure. So that's what he's doing. Now, to those who look for it, they begin to see it. It begins to unfold before them. Now, how does all this come about? Let me show you. Go to Romans 12. We're going to be there for just a minute and a half or five. Romans 12. This is the classic verse on how to find out the will of the Lord. It begins with this. It's something you have to do. Nobody can do it for you. You present your body in verse 1. You present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That is, you who have been called out of darkness unto light, you who God calls saints, saints, the word saint comes from the word sanctify, which means holy. Sanctify means to make holy. You were made holy by virtue of God identifying with you, and in experience you are to become holy by making application of what God shows you. As the Nazarenes would say, you not only were sanctified, but as I would say, you're also being sanctified. You're set apart, which is what holy is. You're set apart, taken out of the world, set apart unto God. Therefore, you're his and you're holy. You're not perfect, but you're holy. You wouldn't want to admit that, but God will for you. And because you are his and because you're holy, he's going to do a work in you that when he's through with you, he will make you spectacles to the world. He takes common, ordinary people like us and makes something extraordinary out of them. He will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He'll say that to nobody else in the billions of people that live. There's as many people alive on this earth right now as have died since creation. You think of how many people how many people have lived on this globe and how few people have ever really, really been willing to give their lives a living surrender unto God. Holy, with the intention of being holy. This is not a sacrifice of my money, not a sacrifice of my time or my talents, but it's me giving me to you. Yes, I know God called me out of darkness, but I demonstrate to him that I understand that and that I receive that when I offer myself, my life, my faculties, my mind, my body, spirit, soul, and body. I think that's mentioned in the Bible, isn't it? First Thessalonians 5. Be sanctified holy. Doesn't it say that? Your spirit, soul, and body is to be made holy. So you offer it as a holy sacrifice to God. And like I said a while ago, you're sacrificing in such a way that you say, Lord, I take my hands off of me. Now, we don't do this, but we should. We ought to be doing it more and more. 
I'm taking my hands off of my will and giving it to you. I want to be like money in your pockets. You buy with me whatever you can. I'm in your service. I want to do your will. Just like Jesus said, I've come to do your will. I also want to do your will. Now, unless you do this, verse 2 won't work. Unless you're willing to start right here with verse 1, any of us, anybody, anywhere, wherever you are, unless you're willing to do verse 1, the other part won't work. We used to call this message years ago total commitment because anything less is unacceptable to God. How many of you know that for something to be holy, it has to be God's? If it's not all God's, if it doesn't all belong to God, you're giving God your time on Sunday morning, but maybe not with your life during the week. How many of you know that's not total commitment? You can't be half holy. You can't surrender half of you to God. He wants all of you or none of you. You have to come to that conclusion. You may need to go to the woodshed, the spiritual woodshed or the spiritual dark woods somewhere and sit down and have an all-day wrestling match with the Lord. Eternity hangs in the balance. It does. It really does. Not everybody that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom, but whom? He that does the will of my Father. Well, I've got to know what that is, because if I don't do that, how can I make it? If I don't do that, then I must be basing going to heaven on my perception of things and not what he said. Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord, but he that does the will of my Father. So he said in verse 2, be not conformed. Once you've sacrificed yourself, once you've given yourself to the Lord, or as we call it, got saved, you give yourself to the Lord. The second thing, this is what you do in demonstration of that. He said two things. Be not conformed, but be transformed. What's he talking about? Well, he said, be not conformed to this world. You see, holiness demands separation. One thing that God will not tolerate is us being friends with the world. The world is all of man's attempts to build things in the world without God. Man's plans without God is what the world is all about. You leave God out. God is an interference. God is an equation you don't want to have to deal with. People don't like that. You can't be to other people what they want if you go that way. So you try to add a little bit of flavor of religion to your life, a little bit of God in your life, but, you know, don't go overboard. And yet that's not surrender either. That's not commitment. He said, be not conformed to this world. Be not conformed. Look up in the dictionary about the word conform. And it said this, it properly means to be put on the form, fashion, or appearance of another. If it's the world, you begin to look like it. You begin to act like it. You begin to demonstrate yourself in it. You begin to make application of its ways. You use its resources. You trust in its abilities. That's what your life is all about. It's about how to function in the world with the favor of the world as the way everybody else works. That's one of the hardest things for us to break. Most Christians don't. We have been in it so long. The only thing we know, obviously, is what we see and feel and think and hear. It's in the world. We know what is defined as fun and where the parties are and what's cool and what's not. And what we can get by with and what we can't. 
We don't think about tomorrow. We don't think about the consequences of stuff because the world doesn't want you to be sad. Have fun, man. Have fun. We want you comfortable and happy in this life. Don't waste your time like that ant working all the time and planning for tomorrow. Come on, loosen up, brother. Next thing you know, you're a part of it. And you come to church and you know what offends you? The word of God. The word of God. A great theologian. There are good theologians and there are great theologians, but a, I would call the man who had a lot of wisdom in the word in his book on 1 John, he said this, the systems of man, all the things about the systems of man with its ways and its enticements and its promises, when they make you feel like the word of God is burdensome or grievous, then that's the world. The world is what makes Christians withdraw from the truth. As Christians, we are faced with the world. We, we want God, but we're embarrassed that people might think we're so serious that we would actually withdraw and not be a part of that. We won't look like them, dress like them, talk like them, go where they go, do what they do. You mean we have to be separate? That's in the Bible too. Separation. And yet how much of a challenge it is but it says it clearly as the will of God. He says, don't be conformed to the world. You might try it overnight. It won't work. It's a piece by piece affair. It's grievous. You have to have a cross. That's one altar you have to sacrifice yourself on. There is no other. You got to get on it daily. And where the world and God meet, you have to take your side with God, resist the world, walk away from it. And God will test all of us here to see if we really will. Will we grieve about what we hear? What if somebody told you there really wasn't a Santa Claus? Would you grieve? What if somebody said there really is not a rabbit that lays eggs in people's yards? Would you be tore up? There's not. Or would you rather just not hear that because you don't want your children to be tore up, at least until they're, you know, five or six, or whenever they find out. Or maybe you hear that a lot of things about God's will, that we're supposed to forgive people, and you immediately think of somebody that did you as wrong as you could be done wrong. An affair a husband had, an affair a wife had, somebody sued you, had an accident, Somebody was really badly hurt or killed, and it was somebody else's fault. You can't forgive them. Your life has been devastated by something that somebody did, yet you have read in the Bible that if you will not forgive, God will not forgive. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And when you stand praying, forgive. And we think, oh, because, see, I'm having a good time with this message until you get to that. But you're asking me to reach deep down in my life where my deepest, most bitter emotions are. You're asking me to give this thing out and get it out of my life. That's why God showed it to you. You can't carry that thing around because it came from the world. It is the way of the world. It was developed by the systems of the world, and it's unacceptable in heaven. You can't have it. You got to get rid of it. You don't even know what you got to get rid of until you get it exposed. Somebody preaches a word to you or you're where you can hear something and then you realize all the stuff in your life has got to go. 
Your whole life has been so insecure. Maybe you were one of those people that were born out of wedlock. And you were born without being wanted. Think of all the children that are born today who weren't wanted. Homes for children are full of kids that aren't wanted. Oh, they're beautiful. When you adopt one from one of those foreign countries with big, beautiful eyes and a beautiful little angelic face, then they get to be 15. They don't want them. The guy that ran a home one time told me he'd seen more than one car pull up out front. said he saw a big Cadillac pull up out front once. Trunk raised up. A little fella got out of the car, went back and got this bag out of the trunk. And the car drove off and that was it. They don't want you no more. And you get that thing rooted in your heart and you become angry and you want to hurt people. You have no respect for anybody because you've been damaged and you've been hurt. And you've even wondered why I go to church. God wouldn't want me either. And yet you got there. You were in the room. And then you got exposed. And you don't take that personal like he's just trying to make my wound worse. No, no, no. I'm trying to offer you a solution so that you can have peace with God and yourself and not have to live tore up and angry and be a victim your whole life. Well, I'm a victim. No, you're not. We might have been a victim somehow or some day in our life. When you came to God, the gospel has no victims. We have solutions for everything that overwhelmed us in our past. Everything. I grew up in a divorce. I know what that's like. Things I can't even talk about. I've seen it. I was there. I watched it. I know what it's like. I know the feelings you have. I know the bitterness in there. And then I know how insecure you are around other people. And you don't feel like you're good enough. And you try to compensate for that by being stupid and ignorant and acting crazy all the time because people accept you then. Otherwise, you don't think you're worth anything. This is what the world does to people. This is what it does to us. And all I got gets boxed up on the inside of a man's personality, his character. And he's captive to this stuff. And unless God opens his eyes and his heart, he goes through his whole life like this. He never gets free. Unless he's where the word can be preached, where the word is heard. And nobody is trying to accommodate his poor old, you poor thing. You might have been a poor thing, but there ain't no poor things in God's kingdom. Jesus said he came to set the, um, yeah, is that in the Bible? Yeah, he came to set the captives free to open, um, yeah, 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 that's in there, isn't it? Open prison doors to loose the prisoners. Well, who in this room wasn't one? The point I'm trying to make is we were what we were because of our attachment to our affinity with the world. That's what it did to all of us. And that's why when we hear the gospel, we recoil sometimes because we like the world. We don't want to give it up. We like it. Just like Lot's wife. Man, she had it made back in, was it called Sodom or Gomorrah? Man, they had a nice home. Some good antiques, closet full of the latest stuff. And she had to leave because God was going to destroy it. She just had to take one little peek. Remember that? She just stopped on the way. I don't know what she did. I, I wasn't there. 
But I'm assuming she stopped. She heard that thunder and noise and all those balls of fire falling on that place. Probably where the salt sea is today. Pounded it down to the lowest place on this earth. It's the bottom of the salt sea. There. Well, anyway, she turned around and looked like that there. And that was the last look she ever had. She couldn't turn back around again. She got stuck. Turned into a pillar of salt. Dead. That's what the world does to us. It not only confuses us, it entices us, but it misleads us. It never turns out to be what we thought it was going to be, what was promised to be. You thought if you drank Pepsi, you'd be like them people on the beaches. You'd look, you weigh about 100 pounds and look like that. So you and I bought a case of Pepsi and a bag of potato chips. Next thing you know, you couldn't jump out high if you tried to. Because <laughs> it's a lie. It's a lie. The whole world's a lie. All this promise, you know, we're talking about this time of the year when chestnuts roasting, all that stuff. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, right? Now say, oh, that and it's so much fun, and there's a warmth in the air. No, there isn't. Get to the counter, the checkout counter, and, and not be able to find your money or your card and see what the ho, ho, ho behind you says. <laughs> Tell that to your child when you overspent and bought this expensive contraption of the monsters and stuff, whatever the latest dumb looking stuff is, and they get it out of the box and it breaks within what, 10 minutes? Then they're screaming and then they hit this and now he's a victim for sure. So he breaks his sister toy. Well, they get to fighting and pieces are flying. Chestnuts roasting. Isn't it fun? We are trained like that. This is how we were and how we are when we come to God. God knows what he's getting when he got you. He didn't get perfect people. He got flawed people, spotted and stained people. That's what we were. And he cleansed us in the very core of our life, and he saved us. And he said to us, now that you're mine, I'm not going to do this just like that, but you're going to undergo a process, and this process is going to prove your worth and your relationship to me. I want you to let go of the world. I don't want you to be conformed to the world anymore. I want you to see the damage it's done. I hope it helped explain it to you, but I want you to see the damage that the world has done, how it has really corrupted you and made you hateful and made you hypocritical and made you unkind and unloving. That feeling you have when you come home from a party and all that stuff you said you didn't mean and all that cool stuff you thought you were, it wasn't true and you know it wasn't. And then you're sitting on the side of your bed getting ready to go to bed and reality hits you and you know you're nothing but a dog. You're a lying, cheap person because the world made you that way. Now, God comes to us. The Apostle Paul writes, now that you're mine, I want you to offer yourself to me. This is reasonable to ask you this. I want you to offer yourself to me a holy sacrifice. Give yourself to me fully. I want total commitment. And add this to it. And be not conformed to this world, but be, our second word, but be transformed. The word transformed simply means to be conformed to another's pattern. I think it's the word schematic, that God will begin to unveil to you his divine schematic. That sounds like a good title. Divine schematic. 
And it shows you how a building is to be built, what goes where and how and how far it is and, and all the way it's supposed to be put together rightly. He said, in this way, you break from the world because you cannot be transformed if you're still conformed. You got to break from the world and you won't break from the world until you offer yourself to God. So you offer yourself to God, you make a decision to break from the world. You offer your body. Now, be transformed. Be changed into another form. It's a process of change. How do we do this? How does this process take place? Are you still in Romans 12? Verse 2, be not conformed, but be transformed specifically how? By the renewing of your mind. Does my mind need to be renewed? Does your mind need to be renewed? Does our mind need to be renewed? Why? What's such a big deal with my mind? What's the big deal about my mind? Didn't he give me a new heart and a new spirit? Didn't God uh, save me? Well, what's the big deal now about my mind? Well, you know the story. My mind is essentially my brain. Technically, it's called the organ of mental perception. Pretty good, huh? But anyway, my mind, my brain, is also my hard drive. All the learning processes I've been through through my life when I was 28 when I got saved. Well, for 28 years, what was formed in my mind was what I had learned, what I had perceived, things I had figured out, ways I'm going to go. Now, this is the way I'm going to do it. My mind was like that. My mind became corrupt because my mind became my enemy. You see, I would hear the gospel every now and then when I was in college. I would hear the gospel on Sunday morning. I guess it was a gospel. I don't know what it was. But I would go to church on Sunday mornings. And I would hear things. And if it was anything beyond shallow ordinariness, my mind would reject it. You know what I mean? It would resist it. You know, you talk about divine healing, you know, God heals. And what does a man's brain often say? Well, well, wait a minute. How can you say that God heals when there's so many good Christian people who are sick? How can you say that God delivers us from all of our evils and ills when there's a lot of people that are struggling with physical ailments, diabetes, heart problems, name a thousand more. If you listen to the radio, you know what they all are in a month. How is it if God does all of that, that there's so many people still like that. If God delivers us from all of our fears, that would be his will, wouldn't it? Then why is it that so many people I talk to in the church are talking about what they're scared of? Oh, it just scares me. Oh, I don't know. I'm just so, un I'm just, stuff like that bothers me. Why is it that so many people are still scared? Have they not broke from the world yet? Or is there a slow learning problem? What's going on here? Or maybe God doesn't do all of that stuff. That's what my brain says. I don't know that that's right. How can you say that? How can you tell me I have to be transformed by the renewing of my mind? How can I be changed? Turn for a moment to 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 17 and 18. One of those two. All those years of learning and struggles, insecurity, failures, 
weaknesses, insecurities, all the things in me that really did flaw me and corrupt me. What am I going to do? How is my mind going to be renewed? But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, a glass, the glory of the Lord. What does a glass or a mirror refer to? The word. Isn't it true that when you look in the word, you not only read words, but you see things? Don't words make pictures? Of course they do. Have you ever seen yourself like God says you are? Of course you probably have. So we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. While we look, what happens? To those who keep looking, what happens? While we look, we are being what? Changed. Change is the word transform, same word, transform. Changed and transformed is the same word. Jesus was transfigured in Matthew 17. He was changed into another form. He says here, as we behold in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we're being changed into the same image. What are we looking at? What do we see? What is the image he's talking about? Help me now. What is the image that he's talking about in 2 Corinthians 3? It's Jesus. Isn't that the one? Are we to be conformed to his image? How do we do that? We have to look at him. We got to get our eyes off the world and our future and our tomorrows and our greatness. And we've got to look at him for one, listen to me, for one reason. So I can know his will, because that's what I change into. I've got to want that. I've got to be so stirred and prompted by the Lord, so touched by the Lord that this is what I want more than anything. And so as I'm looking into this word with these two beady eyes of mine, and I begin to behold I begin to see who he is, the way he lived, that he was an example for us to follow in his steps. That's in there. That's his will. I begin to draw back and said, nobody can be like that. Nobody can do that. You know what Jesus says? With man, it is impossible because you don't have enough committees to vote on how to do this. With man, it is impossible, but with God. If you're willing to surrender yourself... With God, all things are possible. He can take the likes of me and you and transform us into the image of Christ. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Remember Romans 8, verse 29, whom he did foreknow, these he also predestined to be conformed. It's in the book. Nothing else is acceptable. Don't we sing a song that says, To be like Chevyville Christian Assembly's preacher Tom Hamilton? I know you don't sing that. If you do, then it's unwise. But to be like Jesus, to be like Jesus, all I ask is to be like him. All through life's journey from earth to glory, all I ask is to be like him. I can only do it one specific way, and that's his way. And his way is very simple. Offer yourself, separate yourself, and redo yourself. 
be transformed, be changed into this new image that God has. Let me tell you something else. When it comes to the message of the deeper life and how deep we are and how deep this one or that one is, I challenge you to find a message deeper than this because it's a message that changes your life into what God wants. It's not a go to church, sing a song, put a nickel in a bucket and go home, but it's surrender. We sing that song sometimes. I surrender a whole lot. I surrender as much as I'm able to right now. All to Jesus. I'm trying my best to give a little bit more than I have been giving, but I'm not willing to give it all up right now. I surrender all. We sing that, don't we? He's all I need. Eeks, I can't sing any more of that one because I have already made my plans. I'm not willing to live like he's all I need because what if it doesn't work? There's a commitment that's fearful. Bonnie and I have been there. I know what it's like to pay all my bills, get completely out of debt, be unemployed, and not have a clue, not a clue, not a clue what's going to happen tomorrow. Not a clue. Just what I'm sure is a revelation from God to get out of debt. I believe that's his will for me. I did that in Henryville, Indiana a long time ago and hadn't gone back. My mind tore me up. It said, you'll never have anything. You'll never be able to have anything. My best friends would say that. My daddy would almost say that. I claim a car. God will give me a car. My God shall supply. All right, if he'll do that, if that's his will, and he said it was, then I claim. Then I started telling him. I told my daddy I got a car. I've claimed a car. See, his mind fought that. His mind said, that is not possible. That doesn't happen today. Nobody can have that happen. But why wouldn't he think that? He'd been a Catholic his whole life. Catholics don't have teaching meetings. They don't teach people how to live this way. My daddy and my brother were both Catholic. I've been around it much of my life. They don't know any better. Their mind has never been changed. The mind has never been renewed. They just take a bunch of people who aren't going to change and put them in a room, give them a form and a ritual and a routine to honor and make you feel good about that. That'll get you into heaven. And they don't have a clue what the Bible is. Not even who Jesus is. It's all about Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee and so forth. Jesus is one of the guys on the statue, the little one that's in her arms. The world has offered a substitute to people who don't know anything, who've been kept in the dark, who don't know the truth. It's Ezekiel 22, the reason God judged his people is he said, my priests have done violence to my law. They have profaned my law. They have made no distinction between the right and the wrong, the clean and the unclean. Just live and let live. Leave you to yourself. Whatever you think is all right is all right. Who's to tell you you're not? It's a self-centered life, a self-made life. That's what you get in the world. He said, you've got to offer yourself to God. You've got to separate from all that out there. You won't until you see the damage that's done in your life. You've got to separate from it. And he said, now you've got to be transformed. There's a change that has to take place in your life. And let me tell you something, it's not an easy change. A lot of tears in this walk. You lose a lot of friends. You lose a whole bunch of them. And the ones you didn't exactly lose, they're not real sure of you anymore because you're some religious freak. They heard things about you. They had these mental pictures of you speaking in tongues. 
and slobber's flying out of your mouth and your eyes are rolled back and you're shaking, knocking people down, and you're into that. That's what they think. Because the devil wants you to see that's all there is to that. So you think in spite of all of that, I'm going to be conformed to whatever God has for me. And these two inner workings, this opens up to me the end of Romans 12 to the will of God. Be not conformed with this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? That you may prove what the will of God is. Prove means to put to the test. It's a common word. It's not used that often, but it's a word that means to test, to make sure it's what it said it was. Companies do it all the time. They advertise a product and then they show you how it was tested and all the things they did with it and all the details about proving that it's a good product, so you'll buy it. They proved it. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to grab hold of the word and begin to fill your mind with it. You read it. You go where you can hear it. You find out a place where you can read it, and you listen to it, and you let God begin to form new things in your mind. Old info goes out. New info comes in. You begin to realize, I used to think that way, but it was wrong. But now God has shown me a better way or a new and living way. And so your mind begins to change. You brighten up your life. You begin to get joy in your face. You begin to get a bounce in your step because I found, uh, um, uh, uh, how's it go? I found a nickel on the side. No, how's it go? I found a new way of what? Living. I found a, a, a new uh a new life divine. I've got the uh, fruit of the Spirit because this transformation process, things are happening. Well, it really is good. It's not easier. Life isn't easier, but there's a dimension added to your life in this process of renewing your mind that makes everything, yes, because you have proven, in this case, you have proven what the will of God is. You find out, then there's no longer a question. You're convinced, you're settled. You're not unsettled, you're not uncertain. You get settled. Praise God. Well, I know it's his will to heal me. Oh, I could, well, you see, you might not know, but I know. I am persuaded, like Paul said, I'm convinced and persuaded. I know in my heart that what God said is true. And yet, through the centuries, a church keeps praying and preaching Every week, if you pray, pray, if it be thy will. You know why they keep saying that? Because they don't know. The preacher tells you to pray if it be thy will because he doesn't know. Oh, he would like to have all these promises come to pass, but he never sees these promises as God's will to him. And he certainly can't tell you that it'll work for you if he can't believe it himself. So you're held to the same level of growth that he is. You can't go past it. Didn't he say that to the Pharisees? He said, those who want to go in, you forbid them from going in. You won't let them go past you. And he said, when you get through with your proselytes, they're twice as bad as you are. Jesus said, as child of hell as you are. You limit what people can do. You limit what people can learn. You limit how much joy they can have. God doesn't want us to be fanatics, so we'll sing first, second, and fourth stanza. Don't get in that third verse, because we might get a little bit beside ourselves. Raising your hand. Who did that? Oh, put those down. 
The joy of the Lord. Don't do that here. We don't do that. Is it God's will? Is it God's will to rejoice evermore? For this is the, uh, is that still in the Bible? Rejoice evermore. This is the will of God. Is that right? Then why don't we do it? Because up front, it's been suppressed. We're Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, Assemblies of God too. They don't do it much more. Some of them do, but not all of them do. It's the will of God. We suppress these things. We hold back on these things. We just don't know if that's the will of God or not. We don't know if we should. Evangelical church today, they talk about evangelicals. You know, we believe the whole Bible. The only thing the evangelicals are sure of is being saved. They put a question mark where God puts a period on all the other promises. You can go to Psalm 103 in an old mind. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He forgiveth all thine iniquities. Remember that one? And everybody puts a period there and says, Amen. Read no more. Woo! Wait a minute. We're not done. We're not done. Who healeth? All? He heals all our diseases. He redeems our life from destruction. He crowns us with loving kindness. A word for mercy. He crowns us with merciful, loving kindness. Knowing that we of all people need help more than anybody, his mercy, like his pity, rests upon us to secure us and lift us up. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Praise God for it. He redeems my life and he renews my youth. I'm 71. I'm not about to act 25 because I'd be stowed up for a month. But God enables me to do everything that he's called me to do. My mouth has never gotten old. I remember falling off a horse once out in Colorado. I remember Paul asking me how bad it was, and I said, I can still preach. I said, I can hold my Bible with this hand. If this one don't want to work right, I'll hold it with this hand right here. I can still preach. My mouth didn't hurt. Nobody laughed at that when they were out there. I had a chance I should have shot that horse. But anyway, <laughs> just got to renew your mind. Church doesn't have a renewed mind. Who's teaching it? Who tells you there's a better way than the old ways? Who told you that God doesn't want to heal his people? If he doesn't, then it's divine sickness. If you tell somebody God doesn't want to heal them, then you'd have to assume it's God's will for them not to be healed. Amen? If it's not his will for them to be healed, why are they taking medicines? That's violating his will. I say this all the time and so forth. Unless somebody comes and teaches me the truth, and God did, I'm so grateful. I am so grateful for many years ago when I was young and dumb but saved. It just happened. I was in a place where everything worked right. And the word we heard that came through the mail was a timely word in season. And God gave, and not everybody, but he gave Bonnie and I a heart to receive it. I think I can honestly say in the last 42 years, we haven't looked back. What would you look back to? The same stuff we came out of? 
I've escaped like a bird. Don't we sing a song about escaping like a bird out of the snare of the fowler? You want to go back to that? No, you just endure hardness as a good soldier and you keep going. You keep your hands on the plow. Remember Lot's wife. Just keep going forward. It's worth it. God will not allow you to be tempted more than you can handle. He will provide a way of escape because he didn't call you to lose and fail and falter. Even if you fall, he'll pick you up. He said he would. No, we're on a journey that leads to life. This journey is right in front of us. We're on it right now, and it leads to life. We're being made new creatures in Christ. You know how we're doing it? Look at Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17 Paul's prayer, as you well know, he says, I pray that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, will do what? Will give to you. Will give to you. Will give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That the eyes of your understanding, in verse 18, being enlightened, that your mind being renewed right there. This is how it works. You don't go to church. You're not a part of a body that preaches the word or believes the word. It will not work. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, illumined, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is exceeding greatness of his power to us believe according to the working of his mighty power which he showed us when he raised Christ from the dead. Are those things his will? How do we know his will then? Our mind has to be illumined. Our eyes have to be open. This is not an academic thing where I memorize the scripture so I can pass a test. I'm talking about a life you live based on this word. The motivations of your heart is to know it like, well, he said the word know there, to know even as I am known. To know it like I have known it for years. To know it, to be secure in it, be at peace in it. Like Jeremiah said, I found your word and oh, your word was to me the joy and the rejoicing of my heart. The word, Jeremiah 15, 16. You know what happens when this starts to take place. Instead of defeat, I found a way to victory. Listen, I'll quote it for you. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare, we do have an enemy. The same devil you got loose from is still trying to get back. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. This is a mental game. But they are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. That's what kept you weak. That's what makes you now a difficult person. The devil has a stronghold on your life. You've been told how to get rid of it, but pulling down strongholds and every what? If y'all remember that? And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God God said he will do this, yes, but if he would, why doesn't this or that happen? Because you've got to believe for one thing. Jesus came to save. Why isn't everybody saved? Because they don't believe it. So he exalts his knowledge. Look, but why? If that's true, then why? And he begins to challenge everything you've heard. But here's what you do now. Instead of just accepting the way the world is true, you begin to capture every thought, 
and bring it down to the obedience of Christ. Let me quote you a translation. I don't agree with the book itself, but this is one verse in the Bible, in this particular Bible. He said this, Hebrews 10, 4 and verse 5. He said, putting an end to reasonings and every high thing which is lifted up against the knowledge of God and causing every thought to come under the authority of Christ. I will not believe it unless it is what the Bible says. I will not accept that as true. The bell, you got the sickness this time. You've got some disease or some problem. Or you got some ailment. You feel that lump, that bump, that bleeding? You feel that? The thing the other night, you know this happened, you know what that is? That's what your mind says. Because that's what your body's saying. What do you do as a Christian? Is it God's will for me to be like that? Not me, it isn't. Because I believe what he said. So I take that thought and I bring it captive and I hold it before the word of God. And I say, God, is this true? And he would say to me, what evidence of that truth you find in the Bible? I don't find any. I found that you bore my pains and carried my diseases and by your stripes I'm healed. He said, that's true. That's the will of God. That's what I do. I'm walking in newness of life now. Old things are passed away. Why? I'm finding the victory. I'm finding peace and joy. I'm overcoming. I'm not laying down and admitting anymore and confessing I can't because now I've learned I can do all things through Christ. And even if I am weak, when my weakest moment comes, he's strong because I can be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. That's what the book said. That's his will. We're not to be a bunch of weaklings run over by the world, afraid of everything. We're supposed to be overcomers. But our mind has to accept that. We have to be renewed that way. And let me say this. It's an exercise in the word, the important word. Think of these things. Read the word. Read the word. Read it any way you want to, but read it. Read it slow. Challenge yourself to as to whether or not you're living that way or what you're going to do with that. Think about what it says. Don't be in a hurry. Read the word. Think the word. Think about it. Stop and think. What does he say in Psalm 1? Blessed is a man that does not this, this, and this. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, what does he do? In his law, he doth meditate day and night. What does it say? He shall be. He shall become. He shall be like a tree. Should be like a tree whose leaf doesn't fade anymore. His branches doesn't wither. He doesn't cave into the heat and the pressures of this world because his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. So you read the word. You ponder the word. You think about the word. You listen to the word. I don't know that you can hear the word anywhere you go. I heard a sermon the other night, just for a little bit, somebody that his name was well known. Let me hear what this guy has to say. And I listened to five minutes, and it was all about eating boudin. It was funny. I never heard a verse, not a single thing about Jesus or, the, or anything, nothing. It was very entertaining and very funny. And I think, what happens? You begin to enjoy a service, but you come home, it's like a car run out of gas. You went to church, you didn't get much, and you're about empty when you get home again. 
You came empty, you left empty. You got nothing to challenge it, no conviction, because you won't give if you get convicted. I think that's the way they do it. If you get people all stirred up, they might not give. It's all about money. It's all about that. So not only that, but you memorize the word. I've had people say, boy, I wish I had a memory like yours. You do? Really? Yeah, I went to school the other way. Say, said, you remember all that stuff? And I'm thinking, don't give me all that about memories. How many of y'all can memorize five telephone numbers? I bet I could pick out one of you that can memorize five telephone numbers. Social security number. Passcodes, post office boxes of all your family, your children. Ages of all your kids. Birthdays. There's not a mother alive doesn't know the moment, the day, the event. Sometimes, well, how old is so-and-so's child? And they'll go and see about three months after when this one was born. That would be they were born. They got a memory. I can't remember all that. You know why? I don't want to. <laughs> Have no interest in it. I can say to you all here tonight, I don't mind being ignorant about the ways of this world or being dumb. People use the word dumb for people, I guess, that are slow. I don't mind. You know, it takes me longer to do crossword puzzle than it would some genius. But one thing I do want to know, one thing I do want to know a lot about, and one thing I do want to be a prominent feature in my life is to know the Word of God. The one thing the world leaves out, the scientists, the man of the year, the most brilliant people you know, the greatest, well, I was in sports my whole life, the greatest coaches, the greatest fans, I never met a one of them and knew the Lord. And if they did, it was just they go to church, but I didn't know any of them that knew anything about the word. I'd try to corner anybody who came to our school during the Christmas break. The women in our church who taught school had husbands in the Baptist seminary. They would come over to our school to substitute teach on those days. And all they want to do is play basketball in the gym when I was in there. And all I wanted to do was talk to them about the Lord. And I got to talking to them. I realized they got irritated. They didn't know much about it. I thought, what are you going to preach? What, pray tell, when you get behind a pulpit and they hire you, you become a paid man, what in the world are you going to say? Oh, you can't say much about the word. They don't know much about it. But you got to hear the word. You got to listen to the word. You got to think about the word. You need to memorize the word. You need to share the word. Preach it. Tell people about it. Let me tell you something all of you ought to try. Young ones, older, then we'll close. Everybody try this. Do it alone. Boy, make sure you're by yourself. Maybe somewhere in the country with the windows rolled up. Preach a sermon to yourself. Play like you're witnessing to somebody you really wish you could see saved. Act like you're talking to them. Rehearse what you know and how you would do it. I keep thinking somebody's going to come in someday. I'm back here in this room just preaching up a storm. Loud. And I keep thinking, Abigail, bless her, she's going to hear me one of these days and say, Brother Hamilton, you all right? Or somebody, but I just practice. Some of my very best sermons have been by myself. I think, boy, this is going to be good tonight because I really got it rolling down. I come out here tonight, I can't even remember where I am. If nothing works right. You know what it was? God ministered to me. You'd be surprised how much, listen to me, how much he administered to you if you would take what you know and just exercise yourself in it.
Act like you're a preacher if you're a man. What would you say? Take a verse of scripture. What do you believe about that verse? Act like you're explaining it to a class and you're some big high-tech professor. See what you'd say. You might get yourself halfway through there and go, uh, I'm done. And you have to go back and do a little more research. But at least you're going to learn. It's the word of God. It's an exercise in the word. I used to walk around the church building. I had a lot of meetings during the week after I got through studying. I'd walk around the church building. I'd walk around this one here. I know where y'all sit. And I preached to all of y'all one time or another. Been hard on some of you, real hard. Called your names out and just preached my sermon. Sometimes I think, man, I wish I was bold enough to do this, and they wouldn't quit. It's just the word is the most important thing in my life, in our lives. If we don't have that, we're nothing, and without it, we'll never know the will of God. And without the will of God, what do we use our faith for? What is our faith good for if we don't have the will of God? Amen. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, add your blessing to what we have said and what has been heard. I trust that these people in their heart have heard what you've said because sometimes you reveal your will to us in that way. Not only in the clear teachings of Scripture can we know what you want, but sometimes you get specific with us in our hearts. Teach us your will. Make us without excuse. Cause us to realize we're all accountable and that the greatest treasure we have in our heart is knowing how to serve, how to walk, and how to please Jesus. Heavenly Father, the folks before whom I stand have a need. All of them do. Some are more than others here. I ask you to minister to these folks and bless them with this wonderful treasure in Jesus' name. Amen.